Well, again, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary. One of the things that we do is we'll take a book of the Bible and we'll start in the beginning. We'll go chapter by chapter, verse by verse through, through the book. And we've been working our way through, the, again, Matthew's Gospel. And uh, Jesus' ministry is very popular at this time where we're studying today. And in Matthew 24, I wanted to also put, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 4, I wanted to put a map up and then also read verse 23 of chapter 4. And it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, and uh, hopefully you've underlined or circled Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, and it goes on. But Jesus is in the area of what's called Galilee. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll know that Israel in those days was divided up into three areas. In the very north area, you see the area, and that area is called Galilee. That's the north part of the country. And so you have towns that we'll talk about like Capernaum and Nazareth, and there's the Sea of Galilee, and that's up all up in the very top. In the middle part, you have the area called Samaria, and uh, down at the bottom, the other side of the country, you have what's called Judea, and down there you have towns like Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem, you have the Dead Sea. That'll be important for our study today. We've come to chapter 5, and we're, we're studying the part of the Gospel of Matthew that's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Over the last couple of weeks, we've pointed out that there are two keys to understanding this sermon. And so the first key was found in the first two verses of chapter 5. I'll go ahead and read it and uh, we'll, we'll fill in the blank. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went on the mountain. He went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. And so one of the things that, that we've said is that this, is, uh, this teaching is Jesus' is teaching his disciples. So go ahead and write that down. This is not a... Uh, teaching on how to go to heaven. That's already settled for this group. It's not a teaching on world peace. This is teaching people how to be and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And uh, at this point, again, Jesus is very popular. Crowds are coming, thousands and thousands of people. So it's in this time that Jesus wants to clear up any confusion that his disciples might have so they don't get the wrong idea of what it means to be his disciple. Well then down in verse 17, last week we saw that there was another key to understanding this this sermon. And in verse 17 it says, Jesus is speaking and he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And so we talked about that last week, what it meant to fulfill. One of the things that we said, and again, this is the second key to understanding, Jesus will fulfill the law by living it as it was intended and not by how they misinterpret it. Not by how they misinterpret it. So we're going to pick up today in verse 21. And verse 21, it's going to say, you have heard that the ancients were told. And before we go any further there, what Jesus is going to do From here to the end of the chapter, he's going to take six very common, well-known commands, and he's going to talk about them. What he's going to say is, you have heard it said. He's going to repeat the command, and then he's going to show how it's been used, applied, and at times misapplied. And then he's going to say, but I say to you. Jesus is going to be speaking very authoritatively on this, and the idea is he's going to say, this is how it was intended. And uh, he's going to be speaking, as we would say, God, the Son of God. So this is God saying, this was how it was intended to be lived out. And so that's where we pick it up today. Now, one of the things we also want to say, and I want you to write this down, in that day, and we'll see as we travel through, 
the religious leaders focused in on external obedience, how you looked on the outside. And yet Jesus is going to focus in on the internal heart issue. The internal heart issue. So the religious leaders looked on the outside. Jesus is going to talk about what's going on on the inside. We get that right. What's on the outside kind of works itself out. So again, uh, we're going to go today through the first of the six commands. And uh, as we do this, the challenge that we have for, for many of us is, is that Jesus is speaking to a particular group of people in a very unique culture. And we are Westerners who live on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later. Jesus is speaking to Jewish people in the first century. And, and there's some major cultural differences, things that, that we don't typically get e- even today. Um, it was 11 years ago where our church took a trip to Israel. We took 30, 35 people and we, we went there. Part of what we did was we went to the old city of Jerusalem. Now the old city of Jerusalem is it's, it's, it's very unique. Uh, it's, it really looks Middle Eastern like something you'd see on a Christmas card. So we, we went to this church that was in the old city of Jerusalem. And it was a church of believers who were Palestinian who had come out of Islam. So for them coming to this, they had to come in kind of secretly so some of their relatives didn't know. And so they, they come to this church. Now we are told when we go in, we're told, listen, in the Middle East, uh, there's one thing you can't do. You cannot cross your leg when you sit down. And because when you do that in that culture, that's like giving somebody the finger in our culture. I grew up in Miami. We just called it the Miami wave. And so they would say that when you did that, what you are saying to somebody, when you had your, your foot up like that, wherever you're aiming it, that's like saying, you are not worth the dung of the camel that I stepped in on the way here today. And they take it very serious. Well, you know, we think, oh, that's ridiculous. So we go in, we're in church, and we forget. And so one of the guys who's with us sitting there listening, and he just crosses his legs like this. And all of a sudden, one of the, the, the people become very, very agitated, like, well, what is he doing? What is he doing? And one of the church leaders comes walking up and smacks him on the legs and says, put that down. You have no idea what you're doing. They take it very serious. Now, for you and I, crossing our legs is just what we do. But in that culture, it was very offensive. And we got a, a lesson in, in how offensive it was. I wasn't the one who crossed my leg, by the way. And, and you know that because if I was the one, I wouldn't have told you the story. <laughs> so we're going to pick it up today. And uh, verse 21, and he says, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, I know many of your Bibles say Raka, we'll talk about that, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool, all of our Bibles say you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So, Jesus begins and uh, he says, you have heard it say, you shall not commit murder. And uh, so he puts that out there. Now that is one of the Ten Commandments that comes from the book of Exodus. And there in your outline it just says, you shall not, you know, you shall not murder. It's just, just what it says. Some of your Bibles, if you have an older translation, it will say, thou shalt not kill. And uh, the problem with that is in the original language that there are about six words that talk about killing in different ways. This word is more accurately translated as murder, not killing. And the reason being is it's the word that's used 
when one human being kills another human being and the idea is it's intentional. And so Jesus says, you want to start the conversation there. He's going to say, I want to start it at another place. And we'll see that as we, as we go. This was the first command that, that they, they would say, thou shalt not kill. And it was one of those commands that in that day had become misinterpreted and misapplied. So Jesus is going to talk about how it should be applied. Now, as, as we get into this, it was misunderstood in those days and in today's day, thou shalt not kill is often misunderstood. So I'm going to do this this week. We won't do this for every one of the commands, but I think it's important this week. I'm going to say what murder is not, what murder is not. So one of the first things there in your outline, we're going to see it put it there in a the, in the little box. Murder is not killing animals for food. There are some people who are professing Christians and they belong to a group that's called PETA, which is the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And if you go to their website, you'll see that you can buy a t-shirt which says, meat is murder, meat is murder. And uh, that's not something that you get from the Bible. There in your outline, when Noah gets off the ark, God says to Noah, he says, all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave the green plants, I now give you everything. So we're going to find that, that it's not murder because animals are not created in the image of God. Now in the last service I said something, I'm not going to say it in this service, I'm not going to say it because it didn't go over well at all in the previous service. But what I did say that I'm not going to say is that <laughs> humans are created in the image of God. Animals, however, are created in the image of barbecue. And it did not go... <laughs> It did not go. So I'm not going to say it. So, so just so you know that. It's not coming out of my mouth. Um, another situation that God says is not murder. There in your outline it'll say, and this is back from Exodus, it'll say, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. So if somebody's breaking into your house, you're defending your family, and in the course of that they die, that's not on you, that's on them. You're going to defend your family, they shouldn't be doing that. So God says, you know, it's not on, it's not on you. Uh, in the Bible, accidental deaths are not considered murder. It says there in your outline from uh, Deuteronomy, for instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him that man may flee to one of these cities and to save his life. And the idea is that if you accidentally killed somebody, there was a place that you could go, you would wait there, the authorities would come, and uh, they, they would work it out. But uh, that was not considered murder. That's an accident. So there's a completely different, different uh, response. In the Bible it teaches that it's not murder to go to war, and it'll talk about that. It's not murder from the Bible when the government executes somebody for, who has committed murder. When the government executes, that's not murder. That's something that God says you are supposed to do, and that's something that the government is supposed to do. So when Noah gets off the boat, gets off the ark, God says when you establish government, this will be for all governments of all times. The Jewish people don't exist yet. There's, you know, there's not the New Testament. There's not the Jewish people. So this will be for all nations. And God says this there in your outline. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, 
by man his blood be shed. Now underline this. For in the image of God has God made man. So what he's saying is that God expects when man commits murder, the government is supposed to step in. Not you and I, but the government, and they are to take care of that. And God says, this is how it's supposed to be. And the reason he attaches to that is because man is unique and that man is created in the image of God. So you don't kill what is created in the image of God. Um, next verse on your outline, God would say, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our, like- according to our likeness. So um, I, I probably could have said this a little bit better, but just to make the point, write this down. We're, we're not to murder what is created in God's image. Now, in that day, the religious leaders, they would, they would say, and go ahead and write this down, the, the religious leaders taught that as long as I don't commit homicide, which is murder, uh, then I'm okay with God. So they would say, you know, you can hate somebody, you can assassinate their character, you can ignore them, you can despise them, you can do all of that, and then at the end say, well, it's not like I killed anybody, I didn't kill anybody. And so they would want to begin with do not kill Jesus wants to begin with, not with do not kill, but Jesus wants to begin with because they are created in the image of God, do not kill the relationship. So he's going to start at a whole different place than where they wanted to start. They wanted to start where you just don't kill the person. Jesus says, I want to start with the relationship, starting from the inside. Anne Spangler, in her book, Walking in the Dust of My Rabbi, uh, when she comments on this, she, she says that in that day, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were looking for the lowest common denominator. What's the least I have to do to still be in keeping with the law? The law said, do not kill. And so they said, we haven't killed anybody. Jesus says it's much, much larger than that. So Jesus is going to give the intent. Now, we'll go ahead and, and write this down. And we'll unpack it. But as disciples, we don't just not murder them. Instead, we're going to be called to nurture the relationship. And again, they wanted to start with, you just don't kill the person. Jesus is going to start with, don't kill the relationship. And he's going to talk about three ways that people typically murder a relationship. Verse 22, he says, but Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. When he talks about anger here, he's not talking about anger in the sense that, you know, we all get angry. Everybody gets angry. The Bible even says, be angry, but do not sin. The anger that Jesus is talking about here is the anger that somebody refuses to let go of. They've been wounded and they, they have that seething anger. Probably the way that we would say it, and it, if you're walking around that anger, it has to do with unforgiveness. So go ahead and write down unforgiveness. That'd be the first way. I as you study the Bible, one of the things that you find is that anytime something is mentioned first in the Bible, it's always significant. So Jesus says about do not murder, he says anybody who's angry. The first time the word anger or angry appears in the Bible is very significant. It's all the way back in the story of Cain and Abel. Cain doesn't get what he wants, so Cain becomes angry. And he doesn't deal with the anger, he lets it fester and he lets it grow. God comes to Cain, there in your outline, and it says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And the Lord tells him, you need to master this. He doesn't. 
it continues to grow, and ultimately he commits murder. And the idea is that the source, the root of murder is in this case, in most cases, is anger, is anger or unforgiveness. And so when Cain kills his brother, he's not looking at his brother as somebody who has been created in the image of God. If he were, he wouldn't have killed his brother. He's just looking at him as the object of his anger. When we don't forgive and that anger just comes out. If you've ever met somebody who refuses to forgive, one of the things that you'll see is that it just it's it it it's in them, it comes out, it spews, it changes their face. It, it just it's a poison in them. And it begins to destroy everything in their life. So uh so he says, you know, you know, anybody who is angry, the idea he wants to deal with it at that point. So if somebody has accused you of something that you didn't do or somebody's harmed you in business or maybe you've been hurt in a relationship and you you have that that anger that's there, deal with that because if you don't, it's going to destroy your life. And so Jesus is speaking to disciples and this is what it means to be a disciple. Verse 22, again he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever says to his brother, in, in my translation, it says, you good for nothing. But how many of your Bibles say raka? Okay. Now, raka is an interesting word. It's not an English word. They just simply put the Aramaic word there because nobody really knows how to exactly uh, translate it in a way that it, that it, it captures the, the full meaning. But there on your outline, in the original language, it comes from Aramaic origin. It means the empty one the, thou worthless. It's a term of utter vilification. So when you say raka to somebody or you say uh, you good for nothing, what you are saying, you want to write this down, you're declaring somebody to be worthless. And this isn't something that you're doing internally, it's something that's coming out of you. Coming out of you. Publicly declaring that. And when we do that, what takes place is we forget that they are created in the image of God. So we might declare them as worthless, but God declares them that they still they have great value to him. So as a disciple, we, we can't do that. We have to see them as God sees them. And then the next one, he says there in verse 22, he says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, and all of our Bibles say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. When it says you fool there, I want you to just notice, I put the Greek word there. The Greek word for fool is moros. Does everybody see that? And uh, what word do you think comes from the Greek word moros? Moron. Moron. There you go. <laughs> Write that down. You're calling them a moron. Now, when, when that takes place, the idea here, and again, some of these things are hard to translate culturally, but the idea here is that you are viewing them with such contempt that you would take an isolated incident in their life, you would blow it out of proportion, and you would say this is a character trait, and you'd point to that, and then you would let everybody know that this is who they are, they are a mourn, the idea that this is just who they are, the essence of who they are. Interesting thing, when our Bible says fool, in the, the Bible, a fool, that word is always attached to somebody who has some type of moral issue, uh, some... some uh, lacking in some type of characteristic. Uh, 
well, for instance, there on, on your outline in Proverbs 10.23, it says a fool finds pleasure in evil conduct. And so the word fool is always attached to some kind of ongoing moral issue is the idea. So you find something and then you blow it up and you kill the relationship, you assassinate their character and you do your best to destroy them. The Pharisees would say, I haven't killed anyone. Jesus would say, but I want to start here where the relationship is. So verse 23, this is where the plot thickens. Verse 23 begins with the word therefore. Does your Bible begin with the word therefore? And you want to underline that. Therefore, Jesus would say, based upon everything that I've said, based upon how you have interpreted the law, based upon all of that, therefore, if you're going to be my disciple, this is how you're to live this out. Verse 23, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother, and I've underlined the word brother, has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Well, um, in this case, you go to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, which means that something that you did has offended them. Now, uh, he says, I want you to leave that and then first go be reconciled. So write this down. The goal of a disciple is always reconciliation. So the question is, how big of a deal is this to Jesus? Be reconciled and then then come and make your your, uh, altar. How would his audience process this? Go to the altar, you remember something's happened, leave it there, be reconciled. Let, Let me show you the map that we looked at before on the screen. There it is. All right. So where is Jesus at this point? In the Galilee, which is where? All the way up in the top. Okay. So he's speaking to people in Galilee, and he says, if you're there at the altar, now the altar's at the temple, where's the temple? What town? Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? It's on the bottom. It's a hundred miles away. So Jesus says, I take reconciliation so serious. There you are. You're making your annual trek down to the temple to present your offering. You've walked 100 miles. You've saved money for this trip. You've gone there. You, and and you, you've taken the time off of your, your job. You get all the way down there and you're at the altar and you remember, it just pops in your head. I have a, one of my, a friend has something against me. I, I've offended somebody by something that I've done. Now, it's not somebody who's there in Jerusalem. Your brother, the people that you're closely associated with, are back in the area of Galilee, which is on the northern end of the country. Does that make sense? So here's what Jesus is saying. I would rather you leave the religious thing, walk a hundred miles back to Galilee, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back a hundred miles and then make your offering. Or I would say you come back after making reconciliation with your brother, you walk 100 miles back, you go to present your offering, and you hope nothing else pops in your head. Could make for a very long month. That's how far, he says, I want you to go to be reconciled to your brother. 
So the goal for a disciple is always to seek reconciliation. So far so good? And again, the temple wasn't just down the street. Then verse 25, he says, make friends quickly with your opponent. Now this is not a brother, this is an opponent. Some of your Bibles will say adversary. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're out, while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. So you notice he says, make friends quickly with your opponent. So here, the goal for a disciple is to seek, and you want to write this down, the goal is to seek reconciliation that turns an enemy into a friend. Enemy into a friend. And he says, make friends quickly. The idea is the longer you wait, the more it festers. And so the harder it is to to turn them into a friend. We experienced this a little bit here at Calvary. You know, we've been um, in this building. We moved in at the end of 2008. And so here in the plaza, most of the businesses are closed. Some are open on Sunday morning. A few years ago, behind us, over attached to the, the bank, there was this empty spot. And so a yoga studio moved in. And so when they moved in, they had yoga classes on Sunday morning. Now, we, we had been here and we didn't, you know, the, the, there was no yoga classes. So people would just go and they would park there in their parking lot. And so the, the owner of the studio approached us and she was very upset because she felt that cars going in were destroying her business. People couldn't come in and, and park their car and, and they didn't want to walk from Publix all the way over. And, and so what we did that week was we ordered signs. There are professional signs. We put them out there. We positioned somebody out there so that if somebody was coming from Calvary, we would send them somewhere else. If they were coming for yoga, we would send them in. And by the way, you can always tell if somebody's going to church or they're going to do yoga. They look very, very different. You know, they dress very, very different. So it wasn't that hard. So we did that just to be a good neighbor. Well, when uh, we've been in this building process, the rezoning process, here in the plaza, all of us who, who have businesses, you know, the church and all the businesses, and the, there's a, a, a get-together every quarter or so where all the, the, the uh, individuals come together. And at that time, in our rezoning, it was becoming very hostile. There were certain groups who were saying bad things about us. There were those who were, you know, wanting to just create all types of uh, opposition for us. It was the owner of the yoga studio who said, she spoke up and she said, I really feel that Calvary is, has been a great neighbor to me. And she said, there was a parking issue and they handled it. They took care of it. And, they, they, and so she said, I think we all as owners out here in the plaza should write a letter saying that we want Calvary to be able to build their building. And so what had happened, we didn't intend for that to happen, but what took place is somebody was potentially becoming an enemy, we acted fast enough, they became a friend, and they became somebody who has jumped on board to be a great help. That's what he's talking about. If we would have waited, then that would have festered for uh, quite some time. We might have lost the opportunity to have that person stand up on our behalf. So that's the, the idea. Now in verse 26, He says, truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. That is, if you wait too long, you find yourself thrown into prison. The New Life application commentary on this says that in this case, unrecognized, uh, unreconciled anger 
is the inner equivalency of murder because it's impossible to repay. He says, make friends quickly. The longer you wait, the harder it is to reconcile. And the idea is there comes a place where you, they have thrown you, you would say, into the prison and you can't come out of there till you paid the last cent, which is an impossible situation because the truth is if you're in prison, you can't go get a job to earn the money to pay it back. What Jesus is conveying is sometimes you let it go so long, it's impossible to get it back is, is what he's conveying. Does that make sense? So what, what I wanted to do is we, we kind of bring this to a, a close today. I, I wanted to to point out three things. Jesus is speaking to disciples. We, we get that. This is what it means to be a disciple. The religious leaders wanted to start with don't kill people. Jesus says, let's, let's start with the relationship. Let's start there. And so uh, three observations as disciples that, that I think we can make based upon what we see here. First of all, as a disciple, I need to understand, and you want to write this down, some people are going to hurt me. Some people are going to hurt me. They're not going to understand me they're, they're not going to assume the best about you. They're not going to assume the best about me. They, they, they just don't. Some people are going to take the chance to take the shot at you and point out your flaws to whoever they can. And it's in that time when they do that, we come back to verse 23 and it says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. It's in that time where you and I are going to be called to give forgiveness. And, and forgiveness, forgiveness is the hardest thing that you and I will ever have to do. Because forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is an act of the will where you and I partner with God to re- release that person. I've learned in my life that forgiveness is a decision and then it's a process. I can forgive, and five minutes later, I'm driving down the road, and I'm arguing with that person in my head. And it's in that time I have to come back and say, no, I'm choosing to forgive, to release that person. I've learned about forgiveness that many times when you give forgiveness, that doesn't mean that it makes it all better. When you give forgiveness, it doesn't make them all better. So many times they just stay the same. When you give forgiveness, what it does is it makes you all better. It makes you all better. And again, if you've ever seen someone who's carried around the weight of bitterness and unforgiveness, you, you'll see somebody who it comes out in their face and their voice and it, it, it ages them and it's just, it destroys, it's a poison inside of them. So you have to understand that, that sometimes some people are going to hurt you. And when you do, you have to give forgiveness. The second thing that we get out of this is, as Jesus is teaching, sometimes, as a disciple, my actions or decisions are going to hurt others. They're going to hurt others. As God uses you, you're going to find that people have expectations of you, who you should be, what you should do, and you're not always going to fulfill their expectations. You know this to be true as a Christian because you go to, you go to work and you say, I'm a Christian, and the first time you don't match one of their expectations, they say, and you call yourself a Christian. Yeah, we've all heard that. They have expectations. What's well, the same thing? It's the same thing. 
And so in those times, you might make a decision, and it's the right decision. Or you know, when you make a decision, maybe this benefits this person, but it's going to make this person very unhappy. And you hate it when that happens. And you've, you know that you've made the right decision. It's in those times that you need to reach out. And when you reach out, you say, I'm so sorry that I hurt you. Uh, it was not my intention to hurt you. And I did not mean that um, to, to harm you in any way. Please forgive me. You're not saying I made a wrong decision. You're not saying I'm changing the decision if you made the right decision. But you're owning the fact that, that your decision hurt somebody else. That's why Jesus says in verse 25, he says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're still with him on the way. The idea is you need to reach out and the sooner the better because the longer you wait, the more it festers and the harder it is to bring reconciliation. If you're going to be a disciple, that's just what it means. Now there's one other thing and I want you to write this down too. Sometimes we can't work it out. Sometimes we can't work it out. Which is why Paul would say this there in your outline. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Why does he say if possible? Because sometimes it's just not possible. You can have the heart of reconciliation. You can go to your brother and say, I want to make this right. How can we work this out? But if they don't want to, you can't control their response. You as a disciple need to take the initiative, but however they respond is however they respond and you can't control that. Now, when they don't want to reconcile, it's in that time that we as disciples, we don't close the door, we just take a step back and we give some space. And you say, does that really happen amongst believers? Yes, it does. And my favorite story comes from the book of Acts. Two guys that you might have heard about. One guy's name is Paul and another guy's name is Barnabas. Ever heard of those two names? So here they are and they have a disagreement. Notice what it says. There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed. And and here's what we find. They couldn't work it out. And, and they, they both thought the other was wrong. And so what they did was they gave each other space and they gave each other time. And by the time you get to the end of the story, everybody's back in harmony. They had to give space, they had to give time, but they kept the door open. So as we wrap this up today, when we were going through this, was there anybody that came to your mind that, that you realize that you've harmed them, whether intentionally or not, they, they're offended. And as a disciple, you know that God's calling you to reach out to them and attempt at reconciliation. And if that's the case, then this week, make sure that you take care of that. But what about this? Is there somebody who has reached out to you seeking reconciliation? But instead of giving them reconciliation, you gave them a convenient excuse. Say, oh, we don't need to reconcile. Everything's good. But the truth is, you know, they know, and everybody in the situation knows 
it's not good. If you're going to be a disciple, you have to reach out and you have to accept that reconciliation. Now, when you reconcile with somebody and you forgive, that doesn't mean that you put them back into your inner circle. It doesn't mean that you necessarily trust them if trust has been violated. What it means is that you have released. You've released. And if the relationship can be repaired, you want to take those steps if you're going to be a disciple. The Pharisees wanted to talk about, we don't kill people. Jesus said, I want to start at the relationship. Don't kill the relationship. And with that, we are going to close in prayer. Father, as we wrap this up today, as we've traveled through, for some of us, a face, a name came to us. And and Lord, we know that that was from you. And you've called us to take that step of reconciliation. And so this week, we're going to take that step. Father, for some of us, some have reached out to us for reconciliation. And uh, we found a convenient excuse. But they know it's not good, and we know it's not good. And so for that person, Lord, we, we seek to take the initiative and bring what healing we can. Father, I pray that you help us to be the people that you've called us to be. And that we would represent you well. I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.